1: All right. Well, joining us now is Neil Ferguson, Milbank Fien- uh, Family Senior Fellow at the uh, Hoover Institute and also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He's here to discuss how history shows that nothing causes fiscal and monetary instability quite like multiple big long conflicts is the subject of his Opinion column. How Cold War Three could turn into World War Three. Right. Oh, Cold War II, I should say, could turn into World War Three. Sorry about that, Neil, but uh, good to have you on the program.
2: Give us the basic thrust of your argument. Well, the The thing is, we kind of forgot what a big war can do, because in the period after the end of Cold War One, the wars right through the 90s and and 2000s were were really quite small. Uh, They were small in terms of of casualties and and destruction, and their economic uh, impact was was minimal. Uh, I tried to argue that the thing we called the great moderation, or at least central bankers' like Ben Bernanke called the great moderation was really just a consequence of there being much less conflict after the end of, of Cold War One, And I call it Cold War One because we're now in Cold War II. Cold War II has been going on for at least four years and, and it has escalated. It's between the US and China. But the thing about a Cold War is that it always has the possibility of the real thing of a world war latent in it. We avoided World War III through Cold War One. It's not clear we're going to avoid World War III in Cold War Two. We already have a big conflict, a really destructive conflict that is open-ended. It's hard to see how it stops in Ukraine. I think there's a non-trivial risk of conflict in the Middle East in the near future as Iran is bound to accelerate its pursuit of of nuclear weapons. Let's not forget North Korea. And finally, of course, the US is, I think, uh, pedal to the metal towards a conflict with China over Mm.
3: Taiwan. Well, the other thing that you tease out here and you cite Ed Luce in the FT, I think this is really great because as a part of our program, I've been asking this question of a number of guests. Luce writes in the FT, a superpower declared war on a great power. Nobody noticed. This is the Biden administration aiming to halt technological progress in China, shutting down access to advanced chip making technology. Do you really think that this has the ability, the potential to mushroom into something that is really significant?
2: Yes, I do. Ed Luce is quite right. Uh, If the Trump administration had done this, it would have been front page news. Uh, In fact, it's much more drastic than what the Trump administration did. Uh, I mean, Trump essentially went after specific companies, Huawei, most obviously. This cuts all of china off from high-end semiconductors and the machines that you need to make them and the expertise that you need uh, to make them a u.s person that includes uh, green card holders can't be involved Uh, and so so china's essentially being told you are never going to catch up with the west technologically Uh, that is quite a drastic thing to say and i think the media have underestimated the the magnitude of Uh, this step. And its timing is extraordinary because it happened more or less simultaneously with the uh, party congress Mm, in mm -hmm. Beijing and seemed to me to validate Xi Jinping's narrative uh, that China has to achieve technological autonomy and that it has to be ready for conflict uh, for a non-peaceful solution to the Taiwan question. Uh, So I I look at this as a not not as as a one-sided thing, both China and the United States have stepped up their, their rhetoric, but also stepped up their, their economic efforts. And Taiwan is becoming the focal point for Cold War II. After all, 92% of the high-end semiconductors that the U.S. is telling China it can't have are manufactured in Taiwan, an island that China claims belongs to it. Yep. What could possibly that, go wrong? <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, Neil, I mean, the thing is, yeah, sure, 95%, but don't forget they're designed uh, in the US and
2: Britain. That's right, and that's why the West is, in a sense, acting in concert here. It's a Dutch firm that makes the most sophisticated machinery to produce these very, very sophisticated semiconductors. But let's not pretend that it's any country other than the United States that's directing this in just the same way that it's the U.S. that directs the sanctions regime against Russia. Uh, The U.S. has kind of perfected financial and economic warfare since 9-11, and it's now using it not only in reaction as it did to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's using it preemptively here against China, because it's not clear what Chinese aggression in particular has prompted this ratcheting up of, of the economic pressure.
3: So let's measure that against financial markets. And you write that today financial markets are more complex and therefore more fragile. Question, where does this leave central bankers in a world that is prone to volatility if their duty is to try to create stability?
2: Well, the problem is that they want to be late 70s, early 80s central bankers, Jay Powell wants to be Paul Volcker, and that's that's his role model, but when Paul Volcker was raising rates to squeeze inflation expectations back down to where they'd been in the 60s, he was not dealing with as uh, as leveraged and as complex a financial system as we have today. Uh, it's also important to notice that when you raise rates from very, very low levels, 75 basis points is a lot bigger in a rel- in relative terms than 75 bips was back in 79 or, or 1980. And I think the critical point is the one that we already learned from events in London. I know it's all... Uh, fun and games to blame the crisis in London on on politics. But actually, the Bank of England discovered that the gilts market was very vulnerable to a sell-off because of hedging by pension funds. Uh, Nobody thought about that until it suddenly surfaced as a problem. We've had similar action in the US Treasury market. Remember March 2020 before COVID had really hit? And I think at some point, the central banks are going to discover, oh, dear, we can't actually get unemployment up to whatever would bring inflation down because we'll have a financial Neil? breakage before we do that.
1: Neil, I, I mean the other thing is sure, and you know we've got various measures showing that liquidity in in the treasury market isn't uh, is at those levels that you mentioned in March 2020. But I want to get to the politics of this. Is this likely to get worse as? Uh, You know, you have a sense of bipartisanship with regards to China very quickly. It is who nobody can be more right, if you will, or uh, or, uh, everybody's doubling down on how anti-China they
2: can be. Well, there's only one thing more terrifying than the polarization of American politics, and that's a bipartisan consensus on something. And there is now bipartisan consensus on Cold War II, even if nobody quite calls it by that name. That means that the U.S. seems to be... Uh, for domestic political reasons, partly on collision course with China. Um, And that, of course, is often how world wars happen when domestic politics takes over from clear strategic thinking and you become a hawk for domestic reasons.
3: Great point, Neil. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. Neil Ferguson, Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist.